in a book we've been reading as a family in the evenings entitled Evangelical Pharisees, which has a somewhat provocative and attention-grabbing subtitle. The subtitle is The Gospel as the Cure for the Church's Hypocrisy. The author of that book, Michael Reeves, has written of a Puritan named Richard Sibbs. Perhaps you've heard of Richard Sibbs. He is referred to very often as the heavenly doctor. He writes about Richard Sibbs and he relates the account of history where Richard Sibbs began to counteract what some have called a post-Reformation Christian nominalism. After Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the wall and sparked what we call the Reformation, only one generation after Martin Luther, how quickly things change, only one generation after Martin Luther, it had become all too simple for an Englishman to identify as a Protestant in name only all the while having no understanding or experience of God's saving grace. Christian in name only. Richard Sibbs was eager to combat this nominalism. He began to write. He began to oppose what many saw as being the answer to Christian nominalism. And that's basically... Christian in name only, professing only, not really living the Christian life with the grace and the help of the Spirit of God. In that day, he began to write against all of the preaching that centered around, much of the preaching centered around moralism. Do better. Do more. Do more and better. Michael Reeves, who wrote the book I mentioned earlier, said there that there was a trend in the decade after Luther to preach sermons centered on the Ten Commandments, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. But when it only tends to call people to live better lives and doesn't give the basis for those better lives, then it can be a very dangerous thing. I suppose that that's what's happened to many professing Christians in the day in which we live and in church history in the past. Moralism begins to take over and become the heart of a professed Christianity rather than that Christianity being lived out of grace and love, of a heart filled with gratitude and thanksgiving for what Christ has done. So into this arena of sorts steps this man, Richard Sibbs. He began to preach and to call for pastors, preachers, evangelists, whomever, to preach Christ as the gracious Savior of sinners again and again. He saw the solution to the real nature of sin as being not to try to live sin-free. That's the way some people deal with sin in their life. It's a reality. How do I deal with it? Just try not to sin. Try harder not to sin. Try even harder not to sin. Discipline yourself so that you will not sin. Some of you have heard me tell this story before as a, as a young teenage kid. I would go to church and I would hear a sermon that had something to, to do like this. Go and be like Noah. Go and be like Moses. Go and be like Joshua. Go and be like Peter. Go and be like Paul. Go and be a good, moral, upstanding Christian in this life. And those things in their right context are good and helpful and right. But I would be so defeated because by the time I would get home, sin was a reality in my life again. I made up my mind one time, my my children will recognize this story, right outside of my parents' home there's a large barn And I I purposed in my heart, every time that I sinned, I'm going to go run X amount of laps around this barn. Well, needless to say, I wore myself out. 
running laps and it did absolutely no good. Moralism is not the answer. Christ is the answer. Richard Sibbs is probably best known outside of his title, The Heavenly Doctor, for his one, he's written many works. I have his, his life works, a set of books this thick, but one of his best known is The Bruised Reed. And we read this last night and it captured my attention because as he began to counteract the preaching of moralism only and the dejection of many Christians who were under such high moral obligation with no gospel mixed into it. He said he, he called for pastors and preachers, I love these words, to blow the oxygen of the gospel onto the smoldering wick of a sputtering Christian's life. That's what we need. Some of you have come in here this morning, as I very often have myself, as being nothing more than the smoldering wick of a sputtering Christian life. And if all we hear is go and do better, go and do more, then that sputtering wick leaves the same way it came in. But if we hear the gospel of Christ, which tells us that we are made right in the sight of God, not, not by anything that we have done, and that we are maintained as justified in the sight of God, not by anything that we currently do, that it is all of grace, that it is all of Christ, and then as we seek to employ those words that we just sang, hopeless somehow, oh my soul now, lift your eyes to Calvary. That's what we need to do when we find ourselves as being the bruised weed or reed or the smoking flax to have the oxygen or the vital air of the gospel again to bring our faith that is sputtering back to a flame. God help us in that. Too often we find ourselves as the very poster children for the smoldering flax or the bruised reed. The remedy is not more. The remedy is Christ. The remedy is to remember the gospel which tells us Christ is all in all. He has satisfied God on our behalf. He has been perfectly obedient on our behalf. He has taken our sin upon himself and made an end of it. He has stood in our place, and he is worthy of all of our praise. Praise God for those facts. So, before we get involved in Ephesians chapter 4, let me stop and pray and ask for the Lord's help and blessing. Father, we come this morning and we pray that you would do what we've mentioned here, that you would breathe the air of the gospel upon the smoking flax of our Christian life, upon the bruised reed. Lord, we need Christ. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ again. It's not just that we need to hear it once and be converted from sin, but we need it over and over and over again. So would you by your spirit come and preach this gospel to us again? Help us. We ask it for Christ's sake. He is worthy of so much more. He is worthy of all praise. He is worthy of all of our Christian effort and evangelical obedience. He is worthy of all that we could give. Father, please help us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you found your place in Ephesians 4, we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. But I want to begin by reading it in its somewhat larger context, just going back to the first verse, which the last two weeks we've dealt with, verse 2 and 3. Paul says in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, I beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, 
How do we do this? How do we walk worthy of the calling with which we were called? He says first, with all lowliness or humility, with gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So what we read in those few verses, there are seven ones, if you will. This is the foundation of the unity that we are called to in verses 1, 2, and 3. Curtis Vaughn summarizes these seven ones in this way. He says, There may be numerous outward things that divide the people of God. We're all too familiar with that, aren't we? We're all too familiar with those things that divide us. Music divides us. Service times divide us. Things much more nominal than that divide us. I've been a part of these, sadly to say, the color of the carpet divides us. Real life experience here on my part, what coffee pot we buy divides us. You see how trivial we can get. So there are numerous things that divide the people of God, but there are fundamental inward experiences that bind them together in an indissoluble spiritual oneness. These verses point to these seven ones or unity that constitute the foundation on which the Spirit affects a true oneness among the redeemed. I realize that's a mouthful from Curtis Vaughn, but let me summarize it with one phrase. He says there, a reflection of the Scripture, that these verses tell us that the unity in the body of Christ is real because it has its source in the unity of the triune God and is therefore indissoluble, indivisible. That's why Paul tells us earlier, the verse just prior that we looked at last week, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. I said last week, it's important to remind you, this is not something that we create. We cannot create unity. We simply strive to maintain it. We have been given unity by God and Christ, by the Spirit. We're going to see those three present here in these verses. And we are now called to endeavor to keep this unity. I read something this week that on the word endeavor that I thought was helpful. Last week I defined it as with all haste, eagerness, and zeal. Endeavor. What I read this week helped me even more. Endeavor means that you spare no effort. There should be no length that you are willing to go to to keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now this this leads to a great question, at least in my mind, and apparently it led John Stott to the same question, because he asked it, and then in several pages in his commentary began to try to give answer to it. Here's the question. On the one hand, we have perfect, indissoluble unity given to us by God that we are to maintain. On the other hand, we know from real life experience, but not only that, but also because of the exhortation that Paul gives to keep it, that there is a sad reality or an evident phenomenon that the disunity of the church is a reality. Let me phrase the question the way John Stott phrases it. He says, how then can the evident phenomenon of the disunity of the church be reconciled with a biblical insistence on its indestructibility? You following the question? 
How can the evident phenomenon of disunity coexist? Or how can it be reconciled with the Bible's insistence that the unity given us by God is indestructible? How do we bring these things together? How do we reconcile it? How do we account? Here's the real question. How do we account for the disunity in the church? Can I give you a really simple answer? It's one word, begins with an S, and it ends with an N. Sin. Sin destroys. It divides. How so? How does sin destroy and seek to divide? That is the end goal of sin in the life of the body of Christ, which enters into the body of Christ in me and in you because of remaining sin. The end goal of sin in the body of Christ is always division. And it needs just very little occasion to do its work. When we begin to think of the church more like an organization or club that has been carefully hand-selected to meet our every passing desire, more so than the body of Christ in reality that our Lord has gifted us, then we begin to be in big trouble. Perhaps an illustration would help. I don't go to a gym to work out, which is probably evident. Some of you do. Some of my children do. And in town now there are several different gyms to choose from. How do you decide which one you're going to use? Is it price? Probably a big factor. Is it the type of equipment that they have? Probably a big factor. Is it the hours of operation? Is it 24-hour? Perhaps. There are all types of things that factor into what gym am I going to be a member of and, and use And I'll be a member of that one until a better option comes along. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in gym life. I'm not saying you need to be loyal to your gym. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just using it as an illustration. When we begin to think of church that way, and let me preface this by saying, yes, I believe the Lord moves Christians when He wills. For the right reasons, there are good reasons to leave a church. But so long as the gospel is being preached, so long as there is no heresy being spewed, then you need to think long and hard about your life in said church. And so long as those things are in place then we have to focus our minds in in the reality of the church as being the body of Christ. And when we allow other things that are very often according to our preferences, preferences, and I realize preferences are real. I prefer things that maybe you don't and vice versa. What happens when we don't always see our preferences rise to the surface. How will we react? When we want out of the church that which fulfills our every preference and longing rather than what is needful for our soul, then we've begun to look at the church from a slanted angle. When we are unwilling to die to ourselves and exalt the needs of our brothers and sisters before our own, then sin is given opportunity. When we are quick to take an offense, when we are impatient, when we are envious, when we are rude, when we are arrogant, when we are self-seeking, when we rejoice in iniquity, and by the way, all of those things are the direct opposite of how Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13. 
when we act according to those opposites rather than the actual definition of love, then we have given occasion to sin. We have given Satan a foothold, a toehold, to begin to work his work of disunifying the church and the unity that we have been given. In sum, when we are endeavoring to build, plant, and keep our own kingdom rather than endeavoring to advance the kingdom of Christ through the pursuit of unity, then again, we have given occasion to the devil, to Satan, our flesh, our wants and desires. So that's the short and perhaps you might say lengthy answer to the question John Stott posed, how can the disunity of the church, which is real and evident in life experience, how can this be reconciled with the Bible's insistence that the church is a unified whole? Simple answer. Anytime we refuse in our individual lives to mortify sin, then it will breed division. It will breed conflict, sometimes over the most trivial, minuscule, unimportant things. But on the other hand of that, the verses that we're going to look at this morning paint a great picture of the unity of Christian unity, again, founded upon the unity of the triune God. When you look at these seven ones that are found in these verses, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, these seem to divide themselves in in groupings of three. Let me show you this way. You take the first three together. One body, one spirit, one hope. And then you take the next three, which are one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then the last stands all alone by itself, one God and Father of all, above all, through all, and in you all. Notice the, the representation of the Trinity in this spiritual unity or this spiritual oneness. The last speaks to God the Father. There is the mentioning of the one Lord. And then the first we're going to look at, there is the one Spirit. This is the foundation of Christian unity, beginning with the first of these three. There is one body. One spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. I think the best way to understand what Paul says here about there is one body is that there is only one, one and only one true and invisible church throughout all the ages. That church is made up not of those who claim a denominational title, That church is not made up over certain practices. That church is not made up of anything less than that number of people who have been called out of their sin to Christ and have been given faith in His name. There is one true body. But yet... Another one of the evident phenomenons that John Stott speaks of, even though the scripture speaks and bears out that there is only one and only one body of Christ made up of true believers of all time, of all nations and tribes and tongues, then we have done a very poor job of showing that unity to the world around us, haven't we? And I realize it's necessary to divide ourselves along denominational lines. We want to be more associated with with that type of denomination or whatever. If you don't like that word, use a different word. That group of people that more closely align with biblical practice and doctrine. It's, It's vital that we 
show ourselves in that way. But the reality is that there is one body, and notice next, one spirit. The illustration is here, just as my human body and yours is animated and energized and given usefulness by my spirit and yours by your spirit, then so the body of Christ is animated and energized and given usefulness by His spirit. And then this ends in the one hope. Paul says it this way, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. You know what every single member of this one body has in common? There are many ways that you could answer that question, but just according to this verse, every single member, true member of this one body has the common goal to which we are pressing. And that common goal is to be glorified with Christ for all eternity. Many people want to take the goal and claim it as their own and try to skip over the first two aspects of it. You're never going to end up in heaven glorified with Christ if you are not in Christ first on earth. Many people just have a disconnect. Go speak to people at Walmart. Go speak to people on the side of the road. Ask them, where do you want to go when you die? I'm going to heaven. Why are you going to heaven? I'm good. I do good things. God is merciful. They know at least that much about God. He's he's merciful. That's a part of who He is. But the end hope that is held out before us as Christians that we all have in common is only ours in common because of our faith in Christ, the implanting into the body of Christ, animated now by His Spirit, kept in bounds by the Spirit. Doing those things that the Spirit has given us to do by His help. This is the first foundation stone, if you will, of The church's unity. There is one body, and there is one spirit, and there is one hope of your calling. Moving to the second, Paul says there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Let's look at the first. There is one Lord. It goes without saying, Paul is referencing here the Lord Jesus Christ. All members of the body have the same Lord. And He is not leading along multiple paths. Christ is not divided, He is not leading His people in different directions. The scripture says that he is leading many sons, where? To glory. Behind Christ there is a great train. In that train are those that have been called to faith in Christ. Who have come to Christ. Who have heard the effectual call of God. Who have been drawn in to Christ by the Father. And he is taking that group and only that group to glory. He is the head of that chain. Perhaps you remember the name in church history of Polycarp. I'm always encouraged and emboldened by his testimony when I read it. Polycarp lived in the second century. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was an older man in his late 80s and he was called before the governing authorities of his day to renounce Christ as Lord and to declare Caesar as Lord. And many of you know how this turns out. He refused. 
He refused to say these three simple words and get his life off the line. He refused to say Caesar is Lord. And I don't have his direct quote in front of me, but he said something like this. These 86 years, he has never done me wrong. How can I deny him now? And he ends that again by saying, Jesus is Lord. And he was immediately taken to the stake and killed because of his refusal to renounce Christ as Lord. That was the profession of the early church. Christ is Lord. One of the, I don't see how we can keep from seeing it this way, one of the great distractions to church unity in recent history is over this phrase, over this truth that Christ is Lord. There is a, a sweeping wave of theology that teaches have Christ as your Savior and sometime later, if you so desire, make Him your Lord. And then you have men like R.C. Sproul and others who have spoken into that and have said things that we all remember. You don't make Christ Lord. He is Lord. And you cannot have Him as Savior unless you also have Him as your Lord. The reason being, again, is that Christ is not divided. You can't have half of Him and then decide sometime else in your life that you will have the other half You will have Christ as Lord and Savior now, altogether, or you won't have Him at all. And so the Scripture speaks to that plainly. There is one Lord, and there is one faith. A lot has been written. What does Paul mean here by by one faith? Is this some type of creed that must be confessed, some kind of creed that must be adhered to, or is it the more subjective which would lend itself to belief in His name? That's where I come down, if it matters, is that it's not necessarily an objective creed that we must adhere to, but it is the belief in the name, in the saving work of this one Lord. And ultimately it means that there is no other Lord of Christianity. There is no other Lord, no other way to be saved other than Christ, whom His God and Father has made both Christ and Lord. And then interestingly we get to this, there is one baptism. Keep in mind that although controversy may be too strong of a word, difference of opinion is too weak, somewhere in the middle, there is a difference over professing Christians about baptism. But keep in mind that when Paul wrote these words, I don't believe that difference had even been thought of. We're still still very early in Christianity. I don't think what Paul is writing here has any bearing on the mode of baptism. Should people be immersed? Should people be sprinkled? I don't think it even has any any, any bearing on not just the mode, but who are the proper subjects of baptism? Is it children or believers only? And the reason that I say that, and I'll challenge you to be a Berean here, go and look up every New Testament example of baptism, and what you will find is that believers, upon their profession of faith, were immersed into a body of water, even the household baptisms that many hold out as proof and evidence of of infant baptism, even those baptisms are in the context of belief. Go find them and you'll read it. That's really neither here nor there. I chased a bit of a rabbit there, so I want to bring it back. I don't believe that any of that is what's in view. Though I do believe in the ordinance of baptism is best biblically administered to those who believe 
through immersion into a body of water. I think what Paul has in mind here is the spiritual reality to which it points. Since there is one Lord and there is only one faith, then it would follow that there is only one baptism into Christ. And that really doesn't picture water at all. It's the spiritual reality to which the water points. To be baptized into Christ, what does that mean? It means that your life has been completely and totally immersed into the life of the Savior. Your identity now is no longer your own. Spiritually speaking, your identity comes from Jesus Christ because He has completely and totally enveloped you. There is one baptism. And again, this speaks to you must be in Christ or you are outside of the body of Christ. Your physical bodily presence in the church means zero toward your spiritual condition. I'm glad you're here. My hope is that this whole place would be full of people. But in the end, it matters not whether you're present in the assembly of the church or not. What matters is that you are present in Christ. You must be in Him. I'm certainly not the first to say say this, and I won't say it as well as others have, but hell will be populated by church attenders by those who quietened their conscience week after week just by merely going to the assembly of the saints. The week long, their conscience is is burning. And how do they quiet that? They go into the assembly of the saints. They mouth a few songs. They sleep through a sermon. They might shake someone's hand on their way out. Their, Their conscience is a little bit quietened, but in reality, all it's doing is becoming seared over as with a hot iron. Church attendance is not what saves you. Faithfulness to a local church is not what saves you. Those two things are fruit of your conversion. They are not your conversion. We can't miss the unity that Paul is describing There is one body made up of a great diversity of members. There is one spirit enlivening that one body to accomplish his purposes. And all of that body that he is enlivening has the same in common hope of glorification in heaven. Then there is one Lord. There is not another. Christ is all. He is it. There is one faith. You must believe in His name. You must believe that Christ died for you. You must then take up your cross daily. I heard this this week and it was one of those things where I just had to hit pause and stop and think. Until you see Christ on His cross, you'll never pick up yours. Until you see Christ suffering the anguish of your sin on the cross, will you ever daily be willing and enabled to pick up your cross and carry it for Him? So what is the the prerequisite there? Is to see with eyes of faith Christ upon the cross, suffering, bleeding, dying, having been made sin by His Father for you, so that you can become the righteousness of God in Him. That again is the one Lord, the one faith, and one baptism into Him. Is that where you are? Then the last. There is one God and Father of all. And then we have three categorizations. He is above all, He is through all, and He is in you all. Can I first deal with the word all? 
It's an important word. Paul was not a universalist. What I mean by that, Paul did not believe in the ultimate salvation of everyone, that all would finally, ultimately come to faith. Paul knew the horrendous reality of a devil's hell. He knew that there would be people who go there because of their refusal to trust in Christ. And so that word all is qualified by the larger context of Scripture. But even when we shrink it down to these first six verses of chapter 4, everything has been said thus far pertains to a Christian, to a believer. And so we interpret and we understand this word all in that same context. You can read it this way. One God and Father of all believers, who is above all believers and through all believers and in you all as believers. There is one God and Father. One of the great, not only heresies, I'll call it a damning heresy, of church history that is still as prevalent today as ever is that there are many gods and all you need to do is find your way to one of them and in the end it will be well with you. The Bible declares that there is one God and He has so chosen to relate Himself to His people as their Father. The Bible does not read that there is one God and dictator. It does not read and there is one God and one slave master. One God and any other thing. The Spirit-inspired revelation of God is, is that there is one God and Father of all believers. You have a Father in heaven who has drawn you to himself through faith in Christ he has acted toward you in compassion he has acted toward you in mercy he provides for you faithfully and he will ever do so he is your father he is my father he is our father That's why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, beginning, Our Father who art in heaven. And of this one God and Father of all believers, notice the threefold categorization. First of all, he is above all. This one God and Father of all is absolutely sovereign. He has an unshared sovereignty. He is Lord God over all. There is none that can even begin to dethrone Him. To question His might is a question in futility. He alone is supreme, sovereign, God of heaven, creator of heaven and earth. And by the way, His arm is has not been shortened. He is still, to this day, mighty to save. He is above all. Christian, this is the God and Father, your God and Father. He is above every situation in your life. He is above every predicament in your life. He is above every ailment in your life. There is nothing that will befall you that goes beyond the boundaries of which He is reigning over. And again, I think it's R.C. Sproul. How can you not quote R.C. Sproul? There is not one rogue molecule in all the universe. If there was one rogue molecule, then God would not be sovereign. He knows every sparrow. He knows every hair on your head. He knows the number of your days. He knows the length of your days. And He has promised to give you strength for those days. He is your God and Father above all. But secondly, He is through all. 
And to me, this seems to temper a bit this first above all. It's not as if God is above all and totally disconnected from His creation or more importantly, from His redeemed. He's not just above, but He's through all. He is not living in remote indifference to us. His influence and power are everywhere felt. And then thirdly, you see how it's as if Paul is just bringing this down, down, and down and making it even more personal. Is he above all? Absolutely. Do we glory in it? Yes. Is he through all? Is he pervasive? Is he omnipresent? Is he everywhere all the time? He is. But lastly, he is in all. He's in you. He's in me. He is indwelling us by His Spirit. We are, think of this, we are in personal, intimate relationship with the one God and Father of all. How are we in this relationship? Because there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. What's the outworking of this relationship? There is one body. There is one Spirit. And there is one hope. When you take all of these things together, certainly the, the unity of the Trinity is hovering over these verses. And it's the unity that has come to us by faith in Christ that we are, by Paul, exhorted and beseeched to endeavor to keep in the bond of peace. God help us to be a people and a body endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do you do that? Well, he tells us in verse 1, lowliness. Lowliness. Humility. How else? Gentleness. Meekness. How else? With long suffering or patience. How else? Bearing with one another in love. And that seems to be the formula that results in endeavoring. So there's a real good test that you can apply to yourself as I do to myself. We like tests, don't we? The tests of 1 John anyway that tell us whether or not we are really in the faith. If we say one thing but do not another, then we lie and do not practice the truth. So if you were to test yourself and ask a sincere, honest question, am I endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? If you're seeking to answer that question, if we're all seeking to answer that question, then we have to ask these. Am I humble? Am I meek? Am I patient? And do I bear with other people? Or am I the opposite of those? Am I proud? harsh, impatient, and unwilling to deal with anyone's stuff. Now there's a reason the Bible tells us to bear with one another, to bear with the scruples of the weak, and so on. That's because we are all diverse. We're not all Martin Luther's. We're not all Paul Washer's. We're not all R.C. Sproul's. The vast majority of us are so far beneath that. And every one of us, to a man and to a woman, believing in Christ, still have a sin nature that must be mortified and put down and cast off every single day of our lives. God help us. 
Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that you have told us and unfolded for us the unity with which we have been entrusted. We confess that there is one body, that there is one spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, above, through, and in us all. You have equipped us so perfectly to shine as lights in the world, to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us at every point and turn to show forth the beauties of Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us individually and corporately as a church to do no harm to the witness that you have given us, to the unity of the Spirit. Help us all endeavor to spare no effort with haste, eagerness, and zeal to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We pray it in Christ's name. We pray it for His sake. We pray it and ask, Lord, that You would increase our ability to evangelize the world around us. Help our profession and our actual walk of faith to be in agreement. That we not be like the Pharisee promoting himself, self-reliant, Lord, help us to be more like the tax collector, humbled before you, just beating his chest and say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, I pray you would do that sovereign work of yours, that you would draw sinners unto yourself. We pray and ask it in Christ's name. Amen.